Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. I hope you have one or can pull one up on your phone and follow along with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Uh, if you want to use a Blue Pew Bible along with me, that's page 847. And after taking the past six weeks to preach through our vision series, we now return to our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, for those of you who are maybe visiting this morning or uh, you've just maybe begun coming in the past few weeks, um, our predominant preaching rhythm here at Grace Church is going through books of the Bible, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and going line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and just unpacking how every passage, every story in the Bible points to, finds its final fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and, and then how we should live in response to that. And so uh, one of the reasons is that, um, that we do that, and that we have just found our conviction in that rhythm, is that our weekly gathering here, week in and week out, is simply put, Jeff said a little bit in his um, remarks as well, we, we just want to worship God for what he's done. Like, that is enough of a reason for us to come in week out and week in and week out, to worship him for what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, to proclaim that power and might to one another, to him, to be stirred in our hearts, to love him more, to love one another more. And so what we do uh, through singing, through praying, through preaching, is we convey information that leads to transformation. And that is worthy of gathering each week. And so back in January, we started through the Gospel of Mark. And from January up until Labor Day, we made it through chapter 10. So this morning, we get to pick it back up in chapter 11. And so here's a kind of high-level recap, high-level reminder of what we have seen in the Gospel of Mark so far. And it all starts in the first verse. First verse of the Gospel where Mark, as the author, intentionally just gives the theme away for the entire book. Like, it's, it's not a, a teaser. He just gives you the entire theme. He says, this is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. He says, this whole book that is coming, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the entire book is meant to be read through that lens, is that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is the Messiah. We're not hoping he will be someday. We're not hoping it turns out that way. That just he is and then he begins to unpack this narrative of his life and his ministry of how this came about. And so the first eight chapters of Mark narrate this kind of three-year ministry, and it's so um, fast-paced. We've seen that all, when we went through all these stories in the chapters where Jesus is just teaching and he's healing and he's driving out evil over and over again. And there's this question that emerges from all those who are around him, all those who interact with him. And the question is just, who is this guy? Like, like where did he come from? Who is he? And so his closest disciples who love him are asking that. The Jewish elite who hate them are asking that. The crowds that are just kind of fascinated, don't know what to do with him. They, they all differ in kind of how they see him, but they're all asking the same question. Where did he come from? Who is he? And it was at the end of chapter 8 that Peter, one of his closest disciples, finally verbally nails it for the first time. Jesus, you are the Christ. It was this breakthrough moment in the gospel. And he and the rest of his disciples didn't really know what that meant yet. We're going to see a little bit later in our passage today. They thought he was going to come be king of Israel, like physical king, and then free them from Roman oppression right then and there. 
And so Jesus is the Christ, and then it leads to the whole back half of the book that then answers two other questions. What has Jesus come to do? And then what should our response be? In chapters 9 and 10, where we spent the entire summer, we, we, it's called the discipleship discourse. And, and in, this, in those chapters, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection three times and then laid out for his disciples what's it look like to follow him, not just believe in him, but have a faith that follows. And now we get to chapter 11. And the whole narrative takes a really decisive and noticeable turn at this point in that it will slow down dramatically. The final third of this gospel, chapter 11, we're going to start today, all the way to the end, to chapter 16, it takes place over just one week. So think about this, the first 10 chapters, three years. Now the final six chapters, one week. So even if you're not a believer, and you're just casually reading through the Bible, casually reading through the Gospel of Mark, a, just a simple observation would tell you that what happens in this final week must be pretty important in this book. Even Mark, who we have said over and over again, has the fastest pace of all four Gospels, even Mark slows down and carefully, in detail, recounts the events of this week. Not only that, but all the other Gospels, there's four Gospels in total, they all kind of give a biography of the life and work of Jesus Christ, and, and they are very unique and different in their style, in their major themes, in their literary constructs, but then the four Gospels all kind of start running together starting in this final week. They all become unified in their treatment of it, and they all use about a third of their Gospel to tell about it. So think about this with me. Um, two Gospels give you Christmas. Right? Matthew and Luke, the only ones that talk about Christmas. But all four give you the entire Holy Week. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. And we're in a culture that goes bananas for Christmas. And I'm all in, by the way. You know, like, like I'm ready to start playing the music, okay? I'm on that side of the spectrum. Love Christmas season, but we blow it up for Christmas and Easter just kind of passes us by. The Bible doesn't treat it that way. All four are very unified in their treatment of this final week. And so the next six chapters in Mark are unbelievably important to know and understand. If you're going to grasp Christianity, if you're going to grasp the gospel, and then the implications for your life, we really need to dial in starting this morning. Mark chapter 11. We're going to read our entire passage up front. It's going to be verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of them standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we had looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This passage very neatly breaks into three scenes to take a deeper look at as it relates to the coming kingdom. This passage gives us an intro into the coming kingdom. It's three scenes, the Messiah, the crowds, the temple. Pretty simple. Starting with the Messiah. Um, Jesus, if you recall from chapters 9 and 10, he's been on a journey this whole time. It's a pilgrimage that started in the northern city of Israel called Capernaum and then journeyed on down to eventually the capital in Jerusalem, which is in southern Israel. It's this annual pilgrimage that Jews would make to the capital city for the Passover. The Passover for the Jews in the first century was a feast in Jerusalem, the most celebrated feast where they would remember and proclaim the time that God freed their nation from Egypt back in the Exodus. Again, it was the biggest feast of the year. It was instituted by God himself through Moses. A couple verses on the screen to show this. This is from Exodus 12, verse 14. Moses says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast Jumping down to verse 25 of the same chapter. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Side note, that gives you a nice little picture of this following generations asking their parents, why do you do this? Mom, Dad, why do we go to church on Sunday? Why do we celebrate Easter? Like that, that question at some point is going to come. And the theme all throughout Scripture is to say, because the Lord has done a mighty work. And we gather together to proclaim what God has done in our lives. We should always be telling the next generation why we do what we do. So Jerusalem would swell in this population during this time. It would get about 10 times its normal population during the Passover. And depending on different sources that you look at, that either meant hundreds of thousands of people or possibly up to a million people during this time. So every hotel is filled. Every house is bursting at the seams. People are sleeping on couches or whatever couches were in the first century. Hay bales, I don't know. But everybody was surrounding the houses. It was like South Bend, Notre Dame, when the, South Bend, Indiana, when a Notre Dame game was home. Just nothing really going on there during the year. But when there's a home game, that place is bustling. That's what it was like in Jerusalem during Passover. And Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. It's the first time in Mark's gospel that he is going here, but we know from John's gospel he had been to Passover at least twice before during his earthly ministry, probably several more times as he was growing up. And from there, again, this story seems pretty simple. He gets close to the city. He has his disciples go get a colt in a nearby town. He rides into the city. To the shouts and praises of the crowd, checks out the temple and goes home. But when you dig into this, there is so much depth to the details of the story, it's amazing. 
And in it all, we will find Mark is making it crystal clear in this triumphal entry that Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly what he was setting out to do in Jerusalem. He knew he was the Messiah, and he knew what was coming for him this upcoming week. No one else had any idea of Jesus knew, and he was in complete and total control. They get to the very outskirts of the capital, to these small villages called Bethpage and Bethany. It's located at the Mount of Olives, which is one mile east of Jerusalem. And just on the cusp of this capital, after this long pilgrimage, Jesus stops. And he sends two unnamed disciples to go down into the village of Bethany and retrieve a colt. Other translations put it as a young donkey that is tied up. Now, again, casual observation. Isn't that kind of bizarre? He had just walked hundreds of miles from the north down to Jerusalem. He's one mile out. And now he wants a ride? Like right on the edge, go get a colt. And, and I think he knows this is a little strange because he forewarns his disciples. Listen, if anyone asks what you're doing, just waltzing in, taking a colt, waltzing out, let them know the Lord needs it. And I love this. He says, and by the way, we'll bring it back immediately. Just real quick. We'll be back. So what's going on here? If it's not that Jesus started getting leg cramps a mile out, why is he asking for a colt? And the reason, again, is because Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was the Messiah. And he knows his Bible. He knows the scriptures that prophesy this moment. There's a book called Zechariah. It was written by a prophet of the same name about roughly 430 years prior to Jesus' birth. And the book is written after Israel comes back from the exile, back into the promised land. And, and now this book kind of looks out into the future, onto the horizon of the Lord's coming and his deliverance of Israel. In chapter 9, verse 9, we read this in Zechariah. It will be on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Look, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Like that in and of itself presents a strange picture. Your king is coming, but he's not coming on a chariot. He's not coming with a force of thousands. He's riding on a donkey. It's a weird picture. It's the humble king now fulfilled in Jesus. But the allusions to the Old Testament do not end there. Jesus is very clear and detailed. Um, this cult has never been sat on. Just like the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant was this wooden chest that contained the Ten Commandments. It was the most holy piece within the Old Testament that was held in the tabernacle and then the temple. And the carrier of the Ark, we're told multiple times in the Old Testament, had to be a cow that had never before been yoked. Now Jesus, the true ark, had to ride in on an animal that had never been sat on. Further, the colt was tied. Did you pick up on that when I was reading? Like three or four times we're told, it was tied, untie it. Why are you untying it? We're told over and over again, this colt was tied. Nothing important about that, right? Wrong. 
Genesis 49, Jacob was blessing his 12 sons, prophesying over them before he passed away. 12 sons that would lead to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's giving all of them kind of just a a prophecy over what their tribes are going to be about, what's in their future. And to Judah, complicated, complex Judah, if you remember from our behind-the-scenes series, Judah was given the royal blessing promising that one will come out of his tribe and become king. Let me read that tribute. Again, it'll be on the screen. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Look closely, verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He had washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. 1,000 years after this prophecy, a man named David would become the first king of God's choice. A man, we're told, that was after God's own heart, and he came from the tribe of Judah. But it even wasn't about David, for even somebody greater than David would come, for Jesus, born of the son of Joseph, into the line of David. Jesus would be the true lion of Judah now entering into the city. So now you might say, okay, those are little peculiar prophecies. Like people wouldn't really have picked up on that. But we need to remember, Jews in the first century knew their scriptures more than we know our scriptures. Okay, they didn't have television. And they didn't have the internet and social media. They had the scriptures and they memorized large portions of it. And they especially, you better believe it, they especially knew the prophecies about the Messiah. So Jesus, knowing all of this in complete control, sends these two disciples down into the village to go find this colt. And surely, just put yourself in the shoes of these two disciples. They're probably walking down together being like, dude, what are we doing How are we going to pull this off? We're just going to walk in there and take this thing out. And while we don't know for sure, I don't think it's necessarily that Jesus got a vision of this cult and was just like, go down there and grab it. I think it's more probable that Jesus had prearranged this with the owner beforehand. Because they're going down to Bethany, and while Mark doesn't talk about Bethany previously up to this point, Jesus was very familiar with that town. It was the home of his very good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who in John's gospel were told a lot about their relationship. In fact, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So so I think we can say, rest assured, they knew about Jesus in Bethany. And while others might be looking at these two unnamed guys being like, what are you guys doing taking this colt? I think Jesus is saying, listen, it's going to be okay. I've arranged this with the owner. So I don't know if you've ever house sat for somebody before, you, or, or you ever maybe had to take care of someone's pet while they were away. 
But if you have, you're probably somewhat familiar with a situation where um, you're walking into somebody else's home, and the neighbors are noticing you're not Bill, right? And you're not Susan. And what are you doing walking into their house? And what are you doing roaming around their yard? That it looks a little strange when somebody just kind of comes in and starts making themselves at home. Like they're supposed to be keeping watch. So a little story. Um, the Romines, dear family members of our church here at Grace, they um, own with their family a little home in Ocean Grove. And they have been very generous in opening that up to the staff for a staff retreat going back probably now the last three years uh, down in June, an overnight retreat. The first year we're there, um, it's a keypad entry to get in through the garage up front. So there's no kind of key that you have a door. You, you got to know the keypad code and go in. Uh, Jeff and I are there the first time and punching the code, nothing. All right. I mean, just like, again, closing it, punching the code, nothing. Still not getting in. So, of course, you start kind of like roaming around the house because, like, there's got to be another way in. And, like, I don't know, is there an open door? There's a balcony up front. Can I find a way to climb up there? Maybe one of the windows are unlocked. And what, what happens is, like, the house is down the shore, but then definitely in Ocean Grove are very close together. So it doesn't take long that I just feel eyes staring <laughs> at me, and like there's the next door neighbor just on the porch, just arms crossed, looking at me, and, and I get super awkward in these situations, okay? I just don't know how to handle them smooth, so I'll try and name drop way too fast, right? I'll be like, I'll be like I, I know Joyce, we know Joyce, she let us come here, I'm her pastor, we're here for the week, uh, we're here for the week of staff retreat, like just like in one breath, <laughs> just totally like I'm promised I'm not breaking in, and, and of course she's like, I know, Joyce told me you were coming. Um, your battery's probably dead on the keypad. And we're like, she's like, is the light turning on? We're like, no. Okay, you're right. You know, I think the battery's dead. We're going to go get a new battery. But he, the, the idea being, these two guys are coming down into Bethany, and they're probably wondering, like, we're just untying this coal and walking away. And sure enough, what happens? People show up, and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you taking this coal away? And yet they listen to what Jesus advised. They said, the Lord has need of it. I hope that works. And it does. The neighbors give him a pass. But let's keep coming back to what is Mark telling us in these opening verses to the final week of Jesus' life? Jesus was in complete control. He knows how this week is going to play out for him. With his brutal arrest, torture, and death. But let us not for a second consider that he was tricked into this or that he got duped, or he got led astray once the week got going and it kind of got out of his hands. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly who he was, and he was going forward anyway. Here's a picture of your king, humble and meek, but total control and completely strong. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this, Quote, his majesty and authority began to shine through from the moment of his entry into Jerusalem. If you think about it in your life, if somebody does something nice for you spontaneously, just on the spot, they step in and help you out, you think, man, that's, that's nice. That was really nice of them to do. But if someone premeditated, meticulously planned something out for your good, knowing it's going to harm them, but they do it anyway because it's for your good. Man, that's different. 
It's hard to even come up with examples where maybe you've seen that in your life or you've done that for someone else, but that's a different kind of love. That's a different kind of sacrifice of this kind of pre-planning. This is not going to end well for me, but it's going to end well for them. When you're on the receiving end of that, it's just different. This is your Jesus. Total control, yet selflessly choosing the path of suffering for your good. Second, and the final two points will be shorter. Second, we have the crowds. Jesus rides in from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Again, it's about a one-mile trek. And the crowds wave, Mark tells us, leafy branches. Other gospel writers say palm branches. It's where we get the phrase Palm Sunday. And for the first time in Jesus' ministry, he's openly allowing the praise of his name. For the first time, he's allowing people to declare him as king. Because if you remember throughout Mark up to this point, he was always silencing people. He would do something powerful, miracle, and say, don't tell anybody about this. Keep this to yourself. Don't tell anybody about the power you saw or what just happened. But now, for the first time, he's coming in and he's okay with the fact that he's being declared king. But again, it's this picture we have that is a picture of humility. This is not a 12-horse chariot. He's not surrounded by an army. The man is coming in on a donkey. This kind of lowly entrance that perfectly fits our humble king. Perfectly fits his teaching. The last will be first. The son of man, even he has come to serve. It's a word for us today to beware of outward appearances in our culture and in our lives today. Outward appearance paints this picture in Mark 11 of just this poor man's king riding on a donkey into a Roman empire and a Jewish elite um, stronghold, the most powerful empire in the world. They loved public displays of power. They loved showing their strength whenever they could in their numbers. So anybody would look at this matchup and go, man, Jesus is done. The Romans will reign. Jesus will be an afterthought in a few days. But we know how this will play out. And we should learn from this today. Russell Moore, really thoughtful author, thinker in our day today, he has one of my favorite quotes, and you're probably, just going to be honest, you're probably going to hear it about 27 times between now and the end of Mark. But Moore was responding to this charge that the church today is in the danger of being on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that? Beware, church. If you don't get with the times, if you don't change some of your ways, history is not going to treat you kindly. You're going to be on the wrong side of things. Get with the times, church. And Moore says this in response. Quote, on the wrong side of history? We started on the wrong side of history. A Roman empire and a cross. Rome's dead and Jesus is just fine. But at this point, Jesus, to the crowds that are there, is coming into high praise. The crowd is chanting what we sang this morning. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna is a word that means, Lord, save us. And there's this high level of excitement as the Jews that were there were celebrating the fact that God had sent the Messiah 
that just as he released them from Egypt, now he's going to release them from Rome. It's coming. Now is our time. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. And you see, in a way, the shouts from the crowd were right. They just didn't realize how right they were. This was the coming king. He was coming to save them, but it wouldn't be how they thought. You see, they were right, but they were misguided. They could only see through the lenses of deliverance here and now from a worldly enemy. But Jesus had come to do far more. He had come to deliver them from their sin, from spiritual bondage for all of eternity. This deliverance was not going to be a national one for Israel It was going to be a global one for all people. So that their mistake was not that they were aiming too big, but in fact, they were aiming far too small. And just a note on these crowds. You know, a point, I think, if you've been in church for a while, we've all heard preachers make. I'm pretty sure I've even said this at some point on a Palm Sunday, is a preacher that ponders aloud, how do these crowds go from chanting Hosanna to then chanting crucify him in five days? Have you heard that point? like every year for the past 30 years? The reality is, the crowd chanting Hosanna here was in all likelihood not the same crowd in Jerusalem that would chant, crucify him. If you pay attention, the gospel writers tell us that those chanting Hosea are primarily his group of disciples and some others that were following along in their group on the pilgrimage. Look again at verse 9. And those who went before... And those who followed were shouting, meaning those who had been on the road with Jesus for this pilgrimage. And in Luke 19, he even tells us even a little more specifically, Luke tells us the crowd consisted of, quote, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. So we know Jesus had the 12 disciples. They're also called apostles. But then we also read that um, throughout the book of, in, in the gospel books and also in the book of Acts, which narrated the early church in that movement, that there were about 120 men and women who were also Jesus' followers that also kind of followed him around throughout his ministry and entered into Jerusalem. And since this was on the road into the city, this was not the city itself, I think it's safe to say this crowd was generally made up of his disciples who had been with him for a while, which is not the case for the crowds in Jerusalem who chant, crucify him. I think some further evidence to this fact is that, as we'll read in a second, once he got into Jerusalem, there's no crowd. They're gone. It's just him and his closest 12. Everybody else is gone. For all intents and purposes, on Palm Sunday, the city of Jerusalem was not concerned very much about Jesus at all. And that leads to our third point and final point, the temple. It's the third and final scene of this entry into Jerusalem. Let me read verse 11 real quick again. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You know what the most surprising part about that verse is? It's not what happens, it's what doesn't happen. That seems like the most anticlimactic ending possible to this grand entry. Jesus enters into the city to shouts and praises, palm branches and cloaks lining the ground, right? The first century version of rolling out the red carpet. He gets into the city, goes into the temple, the centerpiece of the Jewish people, and does what? 
nothing. He looks around, takes it all in, realizes, you know, it's getting kind of late. All right, let's go back. And they go back to Bethany, the very road he just rode in on to all the shouts and praises. Now just walks back, but this time it's just with the 12, under the radar, no pomp and circumstance. So if you read the Bible like I do, you just ask questions as you, read, as you walk through it. Um, one question, why does Mark even record this? Nothing happened. Second, maybe more importantly, why didn't Jesus build off the, that momentum that he had? That seemed like a moment, an opportunity. Why did he just kind of waste it? We're going to find in the weeks ahead that it was very intentional and not a throwaway verse at all. The temple, as we'll see over and over again, plays a central role in this final week. Mark especially treats the temple like a character in the story. A lot is going to happen in there. A lot will be said about it by Jesus and by others. In many ways, this is kind of ground zero for Holy Week. So here's a sneak preview as to why he put it in there. Jesus is the true and greater temple. One time when Jesus was debating the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said this line, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. Referring to himself. And again, we're going to have the opportunity to dig much further into this, but the, temp- the temple in its simplest stated form was built and instated by God as a meeting place between him and his people. And that was going to be the place where sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people for their sin were made. Both of which point towards Jesus. Jesus will be the mediator between God and his people. Jesus will be the one to lay his own life down as a sacrifice for the sin of those who put their faith in him. And in him, through him, and him alone are our sins forgiven forever, paid in full. And because this is true, Jesus would replace the temple. He would strip it of its power. And so this walkthrough is this kind of calm before the storm. The moment where Jesus is taking in and reflecting upon the weight of what is about to happen, unbeknownst to everybody else around him. This is going to be a strange illustration in a sermon. But it reminds me of a kind of movie that I have found over the years I really enjoy. And it's a movie that has a genre of like a heist or a high-level robbery. All right, so Ocean's Eleven, Italian Job. There's a, there's a movie, old movie, Gene Hackman, called The Heist. And, and in these movies, there's a casino, or there's a crooked mobster, or there's a wealthy antagonist who gets robbed of their wealth. It's the kind of movie that convinces you that the ones robbing are the good guys. All right, so I'm not going to go into the morality of that. I'm just telling you, this reminds me of that scene. And there's always a scene in those kind of movies where the men and women who would be doing the robbing would scope out the place they were about to rob. They'd take a walk around the casino or walk around the building and nobody else around them knew what they knew and what they were about to do. But they knew, walking around, they were about to strip this place of its power and redistribute it to others. And that's what I envision. Jesus walking through this monumental establishment that had become so corrupt 
It's become the symbol of everything that is wrong with the Pharisees. They had gone sideways on it, and it had gone so bad. But he knows in the coming days, he's going to strip it of its power, and he would die on the cross and deliver a death blow to death itself. So it's kind of an eerie moment, verse 11. This Savior walking through the temple, the calm before the storm. And then he stops, and he says, all right, let's go home. Tomorrow's another day. Such a masterful way that Mark begins his account of Holy Week by spotlighting these different scenes, this Messiah who's in complete control, these crowds who are excited but misguided, and the temple that will be stripped of its power in just a few days. It's not what you'd expect, and yet it's exactly how God designed it to be. So as we close, you know, this passage does not explicitly command you to do anything. But in many ways, it's doing something far more powerful. It's a passage that lays before you a picture of Jesus. The Lion of Judah, and yet a sacrificial lamb. A king on a donkey. Power and meekness. A throne and a cross. Victory and defeat. This is a man who's going to tear down man-made religion and offer a relationship in its place by giving his own life. And so I will tell this to you over and over again. As long as God has me here, this is what I will tell you. A picture of Jesus, of who he is and what he has done, will do more to change your life than a list of five things of what you need to do better this week. So what are you doing with this Jesus that Mark just laid before you? Are you like the crowd that might get excited for a moment and caught up in the emotion and go, yeah, Hosanna, and then disappear and get on with life without giving him a second thought? Or is your life defined by a rugged, deep, and abiding faith in him? Church, are you submitting to him daily as the king that he is? Seeing him as the center of your life, shaping and molding of how you see God and how you see others around you and how you see yourself. Let this familiar scene of Palm Sunday fall afresh on you this morning. Of this Jesus who knew saving you would cost him his life. And yet he proceeds into town anyway out of his deep love for you and his deep desire to glorify the Father. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. And we can't afford to be vague here. He's either your king or you're serving something else. And eternity hangs in the balance. Let's pray.